I love Christmas music. We started listening to it at our house about two months ago, I think. <laughs> I have many of those songs memorized, as I'm sure you do. One of the old favorites has a verse that says this, I'll be home for Christmas. You can count on me. Please have snow and mistletoe and presents by the tree. I'm fighting the urge to sing it, just to spare you all. <laughs> Christmas Eve will find me where the love light gleams. I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams. I don't know if you guys knew this, but that song was recorded by Bing Crosby in 1943, while World War II was was being waged, and it was written, the lyrics were supposed to be a letter from an overseas soldier, saying, I wish I could be there, I hope so, but it may only be in my dreams. This year, that song took on special meaning for many, as, as the story came out, called Bringing a Hero Home. A decade-long quest ends with a pilot's third burial at Arlington. It was written by a man named Mark Thompson. The story was about Air Force Major Troy Gilbert. You see him here in this picture. He was a husband to Ginger and, and father of four. In 2006, one of our helicopters about 20 miles outside of Baghdad was hit by a rocket-propelled grenade. It cut the tail off the helicopter and it went down. And quickly, our forces came in to protect it as insurgents came in to get their, their trophy. That's where Major Troy comes in. He, he was an F-16 pilot. He got the call to come in and provide cover for our men. And he came in at 500 miles an hour, 200 feet above the ground. And he used his Gatling gun to take out one truck full of insurgents. He went back out and came back for a second round after a second truck, but he locked his eyes on his target just a moment too long and crashed into the desert floor. Shortly after the incident, our guys went in to find his body. Nobody was found at the crash site. One soldier said it this way. He said, we searched and we searched and we searched. We beat ourselves up hard when we couldn't locate his body. I knelt by this pool of blood and prayed for the family. I knew he was gone. That same day, a search dog found the carpet that the insurgents had used to steal his body away, but they did not find his body. They did find enough fragments to get DNA to prove that it was indeed him that had passed away. So ten years ago, at their Phoenix home, his wife Ginger looked out the window to see a large group of Air Force officials coming to her door. And the first thought that crossed her mind is, no, it can't be that. It can't be that. That's not what they're here for. But they told them, though 99% of his body had not been recovered, the DNA proved that it was indeed her husband, Troy. So December 11, 2006, they had their first service at Arlington. But his wife said, I remember feeling like I know he's not in there. That was 
re-emphasize the first 9-11 after as Al-Qaeda on their website showed footage of people in Iraq holding his body as a trophy. His ID was, was clearly visible. The military did all they could to find him again. In 2011, they sent out a group of 160 soldiers in 104-degree heat looking for him in Iraq. One searcher said, any one of my team would gladly go into the worst parts of Iraq and face any threat in order to get Troy back. It was our job. It's what we owe to every American. They came up empty. Late 2012, it was an Iraqi who turned over some small bone fragments proven again to be his. So they had a second service in December of 2013 at Arlington. It was earlier this year that reports surfaced of a local tribal chieftain near Fallujah bragging that he had an American pilot. So on September 30th of this year, a 29-member team, including members of the same team he had died protecting, went over there heavily armed with enough power to tell this man he had better give up the body or else. They told him he didn't have a choice. The leader caved. They retrieved his body. On October 3rd, he landed in the USA. Tomorrow at 1 p.m. at Arlington, they will lay him to rest for the final time. Troy's mother said it's really hard to go through three funerals. I know that. Even so, because they'll finally have some closure, she said this, it's going to be a joyous day. You know what lies behind the story? Is our defense department has made a sacred promise. Never leave a comrade behind. And this story shows the great effort the military took to keep their word to Troy and his family. When someone keeps their word, it's a beautiful and powerful thing, is it not? But for every story like that where someone does keep their word, there's a father and husband who abandons his family to chase his idols. For every story of someone who keeps their word, there's a spouse who shares a bed with another. There's a close family member who treats you like a distant acquaintance. There's a friend who hits the road when everything hits the fan. There's a boss who gives you the jelly of the month club for your Christmas bonus. <laughs> Listen, we get let down, we get hurt, and it makes it hard to trust. Maybe even hard to trust God. But I want to show you this morning in the Christmas story that God always, always keeps His Word. You may feel that no one else does, but He always will. 
You know the story. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom His favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. There's a lot of things we could bring out of that story. It's been told time and time again. What I want to bring out is that God always keeps His word. At the beginning, He told the shepherds, I bring you good news. In the town of David, Bethlehem, a Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. If you go there, you'll find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And what I love about chapter 2, verse 20 The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were, say it with me, just as they had been told. God told them this is what you'll find, and they found it. When you think about the history of Israel, it wasn't just a promise to those shepherds that day. It was a promise made centuries earlier to Abraham that through you, I will bless the world. And Jesus came out of that line. It was a promise to David that through you, you will always have a king on the throne. God kept His word. Now somebody keeping their word or doing something for you always means more when you realize the effort it took to do it, does it not? I've learned that at Christmas time. Carolyn always appreciates everything I give her for Christmas, but I've learned that it means a whole lot more if I spend some time thinking about it and knowing what she likes, thinking about it maybe a month in advance, not the day before it, hopping online, right after I ask her, what do you want for Christmas? means a lot more, not because of what it costs, but because of the thought and effort that goes into a gift. We all know that. It means a lot more when I go down and brave the custom shops by the Prescott Brewing Company and find something that I know she'll like, even though she didn't tell me, than just hopping online. The effort means something. So, in order for us to appreciate God keeping His Word, I thought it'd be kind of interesting to walk through briefly 
everything God overcame to keep His Word. Because you guys know there's a war going on, right? In Isaiah chapter 14, Satan declared war on God. He said, I will be like the Most High. That's when sin entered the universe. Then Satan came here and brought that mindset to the Garden of Eden, to to the people who bore God's image. And you'll remember in Genesis 3.15, God declared war back on Satan. He said, a seed of this woman will crush your head. We know today that seed is Jesus Christ. But going through history, you think about Satan's position there. Satan's only hope of victory would be to prevent the seed of woman from being born, destroy him, or get him to abort his salvation mission. The war was on. And as we look through the Bible, I want to show you a couple instances where God overcame. Sometimes it was Satan that God overcame. Sometimes it was just the sinful conditions of this world. And sometimes I believe it was just God showing off, saying, watch this. Watch me keep my word despite all this. You start right after Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden. You remember their kids. Cain killed Abel. 1 John 3.12 says Cain was of the wicked one. But God gave Eve Seth after that. And it was through Seth that the seed would come. You think about the corruption of the world that led to a worldwide flood. But God spared Noah and his family. You think about God telling Abraham that the seed would come through him. But Abraham's wife Sarah is barren. And then his daughter-in-law Rebecca is barren. But God opened their wombs. Remember Esau wanted to kill Jacob, the one through whom the seed would come. But God protected Jacob and brought through him and his twelve sons the nation of Israel through whom the seed would come. Remember famine in the land for Jacob and his family that would have killed them. But God sent Joseph ahead to Egypt to provide food that saved them and and many others. You think about slavery in Egypt where Pharaoh ordered all the male Israelites to be killed. But God raised up Moses and delivered them. God told David the Messiah would come from his royal line, the line of Judah. But at one point, a wicked outsider named Athaliah destroyed almost everyone in that house of Judah. But God spared one, a one-year-old boy named Joash. Listen to this, 2 Chronicles 22 says, Athaliah proceeded to destroy the whole family of the house of Judah, but Jehoshaphat took Joash and stole him away from among the royal princes who were about to be murdered, and put him and his nurse in a bedroom. She hid the child from Athaliah so she could not kill him. He remained hidden with them at the temple of God for six years while Athaliah ruled the land. That little one-year-old was the only person on the earth through whom the Messiah could come. God used Jehoshaphat to protect him. You think about the, the book of Esther, a wicked man named Haman, issued an edict for all the Jews to be killed in one day. But God put Esther in a position of power. And her and her uncle Mordecai acted in obedience and saved the Jewish people. 
Now we get to the birth. You remember King Herod issued the edict to kill babies two years old and younger in Bethlehem. God came to Joseph in a dream and said, get out of there. And Joseph took Mary and the baby to Egypt where they were safe. Even after the birth in Jesus' life, just a couple examples. You remember Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness to go for glory without the cross. But Jesus overcame him by the word of God. And the Father sent angels to him to minister to him. Remember, Peter attempted to dissuade Jesus from suffering in the cross. But Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He knew right where that was coming from. There were attempts to murder Christ during His ministry. Plots, sometimes actual attempts. And you remember at some moments, He walked right through those attempts and went on His way. The temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Satan tried one last time to dissuade our Savior from going to the cross. But Jesus was again strengthened by angels and said, not my will, but yours be done. Last one I'll share, Judas' betrayal and the cross. This was the culmination of Satan's attempts, but actually the means of Satan's own defeat. Remember what Paul said, what happened at the cross. Colossians 2.15 having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It was common in the Roman Empire, you defeat a victor, you systematically take off their armor and show them in their weakness and parade them behind the victorious parade. That's what Jesus did to Satan when he died on that cross. He crushed his head. Jesus himself said to Paul in Acts chapter 26, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Revelation 1.18, Jesus says, I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. My friend John Dickerson put it this way. He said, the danger is to think Christmas is cute. Rather than to see it as it is, a death knell in the savage struggle of good conquering evil. Have you ever thought of Christmas that way? Good conquering evil. One message of Christmas is this, that Christ's birth, which led to His life, His death, His resurrection, and His ascension... One message is God wins. No matter how dark it gets, light overcomes the darkness. Listen, the kingdom of heaven has come. It is spreading and growing. And while it has not yet reached its fulfillment, we can rest assured that it will because God always, always keeps His word. And you say, that's pretty grandiose. That's like cosmic in its scope. Can we make this practical? What sort of things has God promised those who trust in Jesus? Are we counting on Him to keep His word? I want to show you three things of many. 
Galatians 4, 4 says, When the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. And here come three promises for those who trust Jesus, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are His sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And since you are His child, God has made you also an heir. If you're looking at that in your Bible, Galatians 4.4, you'll see three promises. One is, you trust Christ. You're a child of God. You are a child of God. That's why he says that we might receive adoption to sonship. So what's it mean that you're a child of God? Well, three things. One, your heavenly Father is for you. He's for you. Romans 8.31 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you believe that this morning? That God is for you as you trust in Christ. Being a child also means our Father gives us all we need for life and godliness. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? Look, He front-loaded this thing. He gave us the best present up front. Why would we worry about the small stuff? Third thing being a child means is our Father does not condemn us. There's an enemy in this world that wants you to walk in here and walk out of here this morning feeling condemned. But if you trusted in Christ Jesus, you are not condemned. Romans 8.33 says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies or makes people right. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Do you believe, child of God, that you're not condemned this morning by your Father? You're a child of God. The second promise is this. You have the Holy Spirit, God Himself, living in you. Right here in this room at Granville Elementary School, He lives in you, in the chair where you are sitting. And when you go out from here, verse 6 in Galatians 4 said, Because you are His sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now think about the Christmas story. Matthew one twenty three says one of Jesus' names would be Emmanuel. God with us. And that happened when He came as a human. But it also happens as He sent His Spirit to live in our hearts. God with us. I want you to imagine this. You're at your house. You hear a big truck pull up outside. And you hear a door open, so you, you open your window and you look out there and you see it says APS, Angelic Parcel Service. And you see a tall man walk to the door and he's got a name tag on it says Gabriel. And he says, I got a message for you. And you take the message and you open the shiny envelope and you start reading the golden letters and, and in your excitement... You misread it. You see that it's a letter from God, but you're so excited, you miss part of it. You read it only as an invitation to join God in heaven someday. 
And that's in there. But you miss the other part. That He also wants to come to live with you right here, right now, in the middle of everything you're going through. And He will never leave you or forsake you. That's the beauty of God with us. It's not just someday somewhere else. It's here. It's now. Right where we're at. God has given us the Spirit. The third promise, God has made you an heir. It says in Galatians 4, since you are His child, God has made you also an heir. Someone who inherits something. We all know an heir's net worth is only as good as who they're inheriting from. You become an heir of an average Joe, you might not get that much. You become an heir of Donald Trump, you're in for a load. Okay, let's erase that and take it to a whole nother level. You are an heir of God. Take Donald Trump and any other human off the table. You are an heir of God. But sometimes we hear that promise and we look at what I'm going through right now and we just wonder, did God somehow forget His promise? Because I'm going through some hard stuff and is what I'm going through right now going to keep me from getting that promise? Will this situation keep me from receiving the fullness of my inheritance? You know what 1 Peter 1, 4, and 5 says? So we have an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, never fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Think of all God's power that we chronicled throughout history making sure the promise would be kept. That same power protects you, guaranteeing that you will receive all that this inheritance entails, starting now and finishing in eternity. Do you believe those things? Do you believe those promises? You're a child with the Spirit and you're an heir of God. Just... What I, what I see happening, when we really believe those things and we rest in them, we start to live them out. We start to take the kingdom of light into the darkness around us. When I know I'm forgiven, I can extend forgiveness to those people around me. When I know God's going to take care of all my needs, I can be generous to the people around me. And I could go on and on. When I know I'm accepted because of what Christ has done for me, I accept the other people in my life graciously. I love them. When we believe these things, we take the kingdom. I think of Janie, who's not here this morning. She works at Trader Joe's. She met a guy there who has an infection in his legs, and she got to talking to him over several visits at the store. And she gave him my number because he he wants a prayer visit. And I'm going to go over there on Tuesday and pray with him. And when I talked to him last night, one of the things he said was, never expected to build a friendship at Trader Joe's. People don't expect that. People expect people to be wrapped up in themselves and all about their own business. But you know what? He met a daughter of the king who cared enough to listen to what he was going through and build a connection. We can all do that where we are, when we are, when we believe these things. If we first rest in them for ourselves. In conclusion... 
the worship team sang a song right before I preached. You remember some of the lyrics, the bells are ringing, peace on earth. Like a choir, they're singing, peace on earth. In my heart, I hear them, peace on earth. Peace on earth, goodwill to man. That all sounds good, and it turns dark in one of the verses. He said, in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. We all know that feeling as we look around, do we not? Look at some of the chaos in our own lives. Look at the news headlines. It resonates because this was written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Christmas Day, 1863, during the Civil War. He's looking at God's promises and looking around and admitting, I feel a tension here between God's promises and, and what I see. See, darkness brings questions, whether it's something in your own life or, or something in the world. Justin said he heard this song when he got home from church last week and began to weep as he thought about the city of Aleppo in Syria. Men, women, and children surrounded by Russian and Syrian armies. Some report desperate to the point where women are committing suicide rather than being processed and raped by the Syrian army. And children sit there awaiting their fate. That's what came to mind as Justin heard that verse. I don't know what comes to mind as you hear this verse. We all have something. That's why we all need to hear the next verse. He goes on and says, Then rang the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does He sleep. Peace on earth. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. Listen, one message of Christmas is this. No matter how dark it gets, God's kingdom will prevail. Because our mighty, loving Father always, always keeps His word. And thank you so much for your faithfulness. We confess that sometimes as we look around, we question. But Lord, your faithfulness is not based on us. It's based on you. It's who you are. The God of truth. You kept your word to the nation of Israel and you sent their Messiah to be born in Bethlehem. But you also promised that through Israel you would bless the world. So we believe as you fulfilled promises to them, you fulfill promises to us. And you will fulfill every promise that lies out there. Father, I pray that you'd help us to rest in your promise. Rest in Jesus. It's in Him that all your promises are yes. Without Him, no. In Him, it's yes. Yes, you are a child of God. Yes, God does live in you. 
Yes, you're an heir of the king of the universe. Father, I thank you for the lengths you went to to keep that promise. You didn't even have to create the human race. You had perfect fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but you did. And you certainly didn't have to come looking for us in the garden after we sinned and spat in your face. But you did. If anyone walked in here wondering this morning if they're loved, there ought to be no doubt now. God showed his love in this. Christ died for sinners. Father, I pray that we would follow in our Savior's example. Rather than just talking about the darkness or writing about it or yelling at it, that we would enter into it with your light. Like Jamie at Trader Joe's, shine that light. We're on the winning team. Your kingdom will prevail. Help us to live like it. Help us to be encouraged and spread that good news that others might find it to be just as you have told. Father, as we prepare to take our offering, I pray that you'd help us to use it faithfully for the spreading of that kingdom and that good news. In Jesus' name, amen.